If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5 is the chapter we are in today, so find it. Ephesians chapter 5. In this series called When Heaven Meets Earth, we have been walking through the book of Ephesians and looking kind of as kind of waypoints along the way, the major concepts that Paul brings out chapter by chapter. So chapter 110 of Ephesians is where we got that concept that under Christ, all things in heaven and all things on earth are united. In Ephesians 2.10, we learn that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 3.10, we learn that the church is the manifold wisdom of God displaying his glory to the world in the heavenly and on the earthly places. In Ephesians 4.16, we learn that in the body of Christ, the whole body causes the growth of the body as each part does its work. And today we look at kind of the pinnacle verse in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 14 when the Apostle Paul quotes uh, most likely a psalm from the church in the first century. He says, this is why it was said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Anyone out there need a spiritual wake-up call this morning? You know, last week we talked about the command to grow up in our faith, and this week we'll look at Paul commanding us to wake up in our faith. And it reminded me as I was studying this, this verse and this chapter these last couple weeks of this thing we used to do in student ministries that is probably not okay to do. We used to wake kids up in the middle of the night and scare the tar out of them. Right? We'd wait till they were all asleep. It'd be like two in the morning, three in the morning. It was dark in the cabin. They finally settled down. And then us and the interns and the staff would like bust into the cabin, turn on all the lights, shine these floodlights at the kids, turn on something crazy like a chainsaw or like a leaf blower or something. It's just like, ah, wake up, wake up, wake up. And it was insane, right? High school kids love to sleep as much as they don't love to go to bed. Once they're asleep, they love to be out. And so these videos of these kids just, boom, the lights turning on and then lo them looking terrified and frantic and angry and laughing warms my heart, warms my heart. Wake up, sleeper. If you've got a high school student at home of your own who has a hard time waking up in the morning, you're welcome to try some of these tactics from church. You say, I learned this at church. No chainsaw, though. That's inappropriate. Wake up, turn on the lights, floodlight. It's interesting, last week, Paul says, grow up. This week, he says, wake up. And I think something that needs to be said is that there's a possibility that you've been a Christian for quite some time. You've already stepped into Christian adulthood. You've kind of become a contributing member in the body life of the church. You have already grown up. And yet now in your Christian adulthood, it may feel like you're starting to fall asleep in your faith. You ever feel like your faith is just snoozing? There are things in your life that, that you know you're supposed to be doing, but you just don't have the energy to do them anymore. There are, there are Christian practices that used to be just such a, an easy part of your life. You'd wake up in the morning, you'd read the Bible, you'd pray while you drove, you'd pray while you walked, you'd pray while you're at work, you'd pray while you're typing, right? Now you can't even conjure up the energy to pray. It's like there's something spiritual in you that's fallen asleep, and it makes you wonder, <laughs> was this thing ever real, or is there something wrong with me? Did COVID, did the season that we've been in do this to me, Maybe. 
I feel like I need a spiritual wake-up call. Other times it happens kind of opposite. You know, we've been in a season where we've been victorious over a certain area of sin in our lives for a long, long time, and now we've been a Christian for 20 years, and this stuff's coming back again. Why are you thinking, I never used to be a bitter person. Now I'm bitter again. I thought I had this sin dealt with, and now it's rearing its ugly head again. I feel like I'm stuck in these habits, these bad habits that I thought I kicked years ago. It feels like you have this desire for spiritual vitality and vibrancy in your relationship with the Lord. But there's something in your soul that's dormant, and it needs to be resurrected. Today we're going to talk a little bit about how to change your behavior, how to wake up in your faith and start living for God, how to walk out of the darkness and into the light, how to start living as children of the light. But before we dive into how to do it, I want to make sure that we've all got some kind of picture in our minds of what it would look like to experience a wake-up call in our faith. So I'm going to ask you this one question. If there was a magic pill, which there's not, right? Or if there was a magic prayer you could pray that would change one thing about your faith, what would it be? If you could pray and instantly stop doing something that you've been doing and not wanting to stop doing. If you could just pray one prayer and all of a sudden have this moment where you just had this desire that you didn't have before, this desire was gone, that you used to be there, what is that magic prayer a prayer for? I'm not going to give you a magic prayer today. I'm not going to hand out any magic pills today. But I think if you can quantify that that area in your faith where you feel like you are sleeping or feel like you need some resurrection, you'll be able to listen with different ears through Ephesians, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning half of chapter 5. Because in this text, the Apostle Paul walks through a process of how transformation happens, how we can wake up, and stop doing wrong things and start doing right things again. So let's look real quick. Let's go back in time to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start with a couple of verses near the end of the chapter. This is Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. This is where Paul frames the argument he's about to move into for the next chapter or so. He says this. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There's three broad strokes of Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. This idea of putting off your old self, this idea of being made new in the attitudes of our minds, and then this idea of, being, of putting on the new self. So if you want to write down the broad strokes of how transformation happens, it's very easy. Here's how it works. Number one, stop doing the wrong thing. Number two, think differently. And number three, start doing the right thing. Put off the old self. Be renewed in your minds and put on the new self. Stop doing what is bad. Start doing what is good. Paul describes a little bit of what that looks like in the next few verses, right? It says in verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Well, that makes sense. Verse 27, or verse 29, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up. In verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but instead must work, doing something useful with their own hands. Stop doing the bad things, think differently, and start doing the good things. It's easy, like a diet is easy. 
It's one of those things that, that it's simple in theory, right? Eat less bad food. Eat more good food. Game changer, right? But it feels like all of heaven and earth and hell are warring against us when we embark on the simple journey to do so. In the New Testament, there's this concept of these three things that war against us constantly, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This idea of the world, it's trying to conform us into its image, this construct we see in the world of be like me, do this, do that, eat this, eat that, right? The world, right? John says, don't, don't love the world. Don't get sucked into the vortex. There's the flesh. That's the thing inside of us that draws us into the life that God does not want us to live. It's diametrically opposed to the will of God. This is the part of us that wants the donuts, right? It's the flesh. Bible says, flee, flee from the flesh. Don't listen to it. There's the devil. And Peter says the devil roars around, or yeah, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't get sucked into the world. Don't conform to the patterns of it. Don't listen to your flesh that tells you to do the wrong things. Don't let the devil get a foothold in your life. Stop doing the wrong thing. Renew your minds think different, and start doing the right thing. It's easy. As Paul starts to talk through what maybe makes this not so easy, he gives us some, some principles of, of how behaving and changing our behavior works according to the gospel and the transforming power of God. And so uh, I don't want you to leave just writing down those three things, then you go try it, now you're healed, right? That's not how change works. We're going to start exploring a little bit about how change could work from the scriptures. But I got to tell you, it's a process. There are going to be some things that you struggle with. You're going to struggle your entire life. And what, what these principles are going to give you is ways to struggle that might help it may come easier. It might help it just you to find Christ in the midst of the whole thing. You may never change completely, right? Your desires may never be tweaked the way you want them to be tweaked, but these principles will help us learn what to do with everything that's warring in us that doesn't want to do what God wants us to do and that wants to do all the things that are diametrically opposed to what God does, right? So principle number one, you can write these three principles down, is this changing your behavior requires God's transforming power. Changing your behavior requires God's transforming power. Right? You say, that's not true, right? I, I can just wake up and read my Bible tomorrow. It doesn't require a work of God, right? It's not a miracle. Okay, right? Then do it. Oh, yeah, diet doesn't require God's transforming power either, right? Just eat better, right? But God wants to be involved in these things that need change in us, especially when it comes to the transformation of our soul. That, that passage we started by reading, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead. Right? You, you cannot raise yourself from the dead, right? If you are dead, a resurrection from the dead requires God's transforming power. When, when Paul describes this, as he keeps going on through the chapter, chapter four, chapter five, you can start to see some language that shows that the work that he's advocating is not a work that you can do yourself, but it's a work of God. All right, we're going to read together a passage a little earlier than 22, verses 17 through 19, which you were probably mostly going to hear all the bad things that pagans do when I read this passage. But I also want you to pay attention as I read this passage to how futile it is to try to change your behavior apart from the transforming power of Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 17. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. 
They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. You read this passage and you probably just get stuck with like, oh, what does it mean to be given over to all of our sensuality? What does it mean to be full of greed? But don't skip over the bulk of the passage that says that before Christ and outside of Christ, the reason that people are living bad lives is because their thinking is futile, because their understanding is darkened, because they're separated from the life of God, because they have ignorance in them, because their hearts have been hardened, because they've lost all sensitivity, because they've given themselves over to a way of life that is apart from the way of life of Christ. All that to say, changing our behavior requires God's transforming power. If you're not a believer in Jesus, and you're wondering, man, I'm trying to become like a Christian, I'm trying to act like a Christian, and it's just not working, let me tell you why it's not working. (laughs) It's not working because changing your behavior requires God's work in you. And here's the good news. You do not need to change your behavior for God to accept you and welcome you into his family. And if you're someone who is outside of the family of God, you're not a Christian, you're trying to become a Christian, you can't become a Christian that way. Here's how to become a Christian. You surrender your life to Jesus. You say, God, I am powerless. I'm ignorant. I'm futile. My thinking is darkened. It's not working. Nothing works. God, I need you. And in this prayer, right, have mercy on me, a sinner. God steps into your life. He forgives you of your sin. He gives you a new identity. He makes you new. And he says, okay, now let's start living life together in partnership by my power and presence. If you're not a believer in Jesus, your step today is not to clean up your life. Your next step today is to surrender your life to Jesus and experience the forgiveness of God and the resurrection life that Jesus brings the moment you surrender the reins of your life. If you are a believer in Jesus, Let me remind you of the gospel I just preached and that changing your behavior, whatever this magic pill is going to do in your life, changing your behavior requires God's transforming power. So as you set upon the quest that we're giving you today, don't set out on that quest alone. Invite the Spirit into the work. Invite the Lordship of Jesus into your life. Invite the Father's guiding hand. Invite the Word to be a light unto your feet, right? Invite God's transforming power into your journey because you will never change without God doing the change in and through you. It's principle number one. Changing your behavior requires God's transforming power. Principle number two. Changing your behavior starts by embracing a new identity. Changing your behavior starts by embracing a new identity. I want to be really clear as we read this passage. Paul is is intentionally and repeatedly walking a line when he's telling people to stop doing bad things and start doing good things, but he refuses to stay it like that because he's trying to show that this is not merely an act of your will doing something, but it's you embracing a new identity you find in Christ and walking in that identity. All right, we see that as we uh, read in, verse, or in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, after talking about the Gentiles and the crazy way of life that they live, he, he says this. He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Notice, he, he doesn't say, you once lived in darkness. He, he doesn't say, 
Yeah, you, you once acted like the people who lived in darkness. He says, you were once darkness. And he doesn't say, now you are living in the light, now you're acting like children of light. He says, but now you are light. Your identity has changed. You were darkness, now you are light, so then live as children of light. He does not say live as children in light until he says you need to embrace your new identity. And changing your behavior requires, and it starts with embracing your new identity. Now, this is something that if you're new with our church and you've just started coming and you're going to track with us for the next several years, you're going to hear this a lot. Because I think this is one of the things that marks Christianity in our generation as different from the system of our world by and large. Because if you live life in our world today, right, if you go to school today, even if you go to a lot of different models of therapy today, or you're learning in whatever, today, you live in the world, you watch the news, you go anywhere today, you live in America, this is what you're going to learn. If you want to be fulfilled, here's how to do it. Discover your identity, like look inside yourself, and walk in the ways that you've been wired to walk, and you'll be happy. Right? So look inside yourself. Who are you? Right? This is why we have so many personality tests. This is why we're so consumed with things like gender identity, sexual identity, racial identity, either ethnic identity, every aspect of identity. Because we really feel like as a culture that if we can just discover how we're wired, discover how we're made, discover who we are on the inside, what all of this in here means, and once we finally have it on a piece of paper and we can start to walk in light of the identity that we've discovered, we'll finally be happy. And we've been doing this for a while, right? Since the 80s, I think, maybe even before. But no one's happy. No one's happy. <laughs> right? You would think that marital contentment, it would be so much higher in our generation because arranged marriage is a thing of the past, right? But back in the day, you married who your parents told you to marry, right? Now it's like, you've got to find your soulmate. And then you get married and you realize they're obviously not your soulmate, right? And so they have to wrestle, I feel like... I can't be happy unless I step out of this marriage and uncouple, we find really nice ways, uncouple with this person, and now I realize I need to embrace this identity as a single person again, and now I'll truly be happy, and then we're not happy. Now, this creeps into the church, even in some of the ways that we do things like spiritual gifts assessment, right? If I can just figure out my spiritual gifts and live in them, then I'll be happy, right? Part of that's true, part of that's biblical, and part of this is tapping into what the culture says that is absolutely false and diametrically opposed to the teachings of the scripture because in the scriptures your identity is not discovered in the scriptures your identity is received it's received you can discover your identity all you want it's just not going to make you happy and it's going to in a lot of ways take you away from the pathway that christ has for you I've got a stupid example. This is not about anything big in my life, but it was a big thing for me. Uh, I had a season, I probably told you guys about this a few years ago, where I was kind of struggling because I was realizing that, man, there are some situations in this world that are hard for me. Like, I go to parties, I don't want to talk to people, I feel overwhelmed, I don't know what to do. And I found this book, which is a great book I do recommend, but don't do what I did. It's called Quiet by Susan Cain. The subtitle is The Power of Introverts. I read this book, right? And I'm like, she read my mail. Like, I'm an introvert, right? It's like, I just discovered my identity. 
And it felt like there's this secret club out there that I just joined that I didn't know about, right? And I'm like, this is amazing. And there's this euphoria connected to the next month or so because I'm like, I get it now, right? I get why when I go to a party, I feel overwhelmed. I get why I want to get out of that conversation. I get why everything in me wants to go hide under the stage after I preach. I get it. I get it why there's so many kids in my house and it's overwhelming to me. I get it, right? I understand who I am and I just need to embrace this and walk in this. It's gonna be amazing. And it was amazing for like three weeks. And then what I noticed was that as I started to walk in this new identity, I had discovered that life got a lot more overwhelming and I started discovering things like anxiety and discouragement that I had never seen in my life before, right? I would go to a party And I wouldn't just feel a little bit like, oh, this is hard. I would feel like I have to get out of here. Like it felt like I was being held hostage against my will. And something in me was saying, you're an introvert. This isn't your scene. You need to get out, get out, get out, get out, right? It's like a a horror movie. And I'm like, we have to go, we have to go. Because I felt like there's some aspect of my identity that's coming into conflict in this place and I'm gonna die if I'm not here, if I am here. I remember being in the lobby and thinking somebody would come up to me like, I'm an introvert, I can't talk to them, I can't talk to them, I'm gonna die if I talk to them. Not true, but this started to crop up as I started embracing this aspect of the identity I had discovered. I find myself going into Safeway and almost having a panic attack because there are people everywhere and introverts can't do this. And this pill that I swallowed, which at first felt like a pathway to freedom, became a thing of bondage because now I realize that there was half of the world that I can no longer live in because of part of an identity of mine that I had discovered. This is a dumb example, right? Being an introvert is not as important as some of the aspects of your all identity that you're wrestling with, right? Whatever they may be. But for me, it was a great example of what happens when you try to live according to the ways of the world, which is that if you find, if you discover your identity on the inside and walk in it, you will find fulfillment there. You will not find fulfillment by embracing or discovering your identity from within. Christ and his teachings teach us that you will find life and fulfillment when you receive a new identity from outside of you and discover it and walk in that identity. Now, this is the language we see in 422 when he says, put off the old self, right? It's almost like, take off introvert Danny. Put off introvert Danny <laughs> and renew my minds, right? Receive this new identity in Christ and decide how am I supposed to walk in this, right? And so I look at this identity in Christ and Jesus doesn't tell me that I'm an introvert or an extrovert, right? What Jesus tells me is you need to go and love people. What Jesus tells me is you need to bear one another's burdens. What Jesus tells me is there's a lot of things I'm going to call you to do in this life that's going to require human contact, right? And Jesus also teaches me that I need solitude, that I need silence, that I need quiet, that it's good to get apart from the world and reflect and be with the Lord. Jesus teaches me a more well-rounded way of living. And as I look at the way of Jesus that I've received from him, I have to ask myself, okay, if Jesus was born in my introvert body, how would he live? Would he go and care for people who are homeless and hungry? Or would he say, not my scene, I'm going to go read a book, right? Or would Jesus lean in to the areas where there's tension and pressure and start to walk in the identity that he has received from the Father, even if it's not part of his natural identity? Jesus struggled, Jesus was tempted just like the rest of us. He was fully human. And yet the thing that marks Jesus was not that he knew his Myers-Briggs and lived in it, right? 
What marked Jesus is that he submitted every aspect of who he was to the will of the Father, and he chose to live the pathway God had for him based on the identity even he had received as the Son of God, the child of God, the Messiah. He lived out his identity perfectly. So here's an exercise to kind of put this into perspective for you. I would love for you to take, just take some time this week, this month, and kind of walk through this. It starts with a really easy step. It's brainstorming, no filtering. Just go on a walk or sit down with your journal, however you process stuff, right? If you're an extrovert, do it verbally, right? If you're an introvert, go hide in your room and do it. I don't care, right? But process it out. Write it all out. Get it on a piece of paper. Every aspect of your identity that you can imagine. Write it down. Write down your Myers-Briggs, right? Write down if you're an introvert or an extrovert. Write down your gender. Write down your age. Say, I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I'm a single person. Write down parts of your identity that you didn't realize you had. I'm I'm a survivor of abuse. I'm a child of an alcoholic. I'm a single mom. I'm a, I'm a person who's struggling to make ends meet. I'm someone who struggles with pride. I'm someone who is prideful. I'm a liar. I lie sometimes, right? Just put it out there. Who are you? Just think if somebody in the world wanted a profile of who you were as a person based on the metrics of the world, what would be on that paper, right? What's your Enneagram number? Where are you on the Kinsey scale? What's your, uh, <laughs> what's your what is it, choleric uh, What's the different thing? Remember that sanguine, phlegmatic, melancholy. Where are you on that person? What color are you? What animal are you on? Lion, I'm an otter. Put it all out there, right? Who are you? I'm a second generation immigrant. I grew up in this area. It's part of my identity. I got jumped when I was a kid. It's part of my identity. I came from money. I have a platform of privilege. Whatever it is, right? Put it down. Just on the paper. Don't make that sound, but put it down on the paper. <laughs> step two. There's only three steps. Step two. Look, look at this list. Look at this list that is you, right? It's like in kindergarten when you have to draw a picture of your body and say, all about me. That's it, right there on the piece of paper. And then circle the ones that jump out at you, right? Some of them are going to jump out at you because they're a key part of you. You're like, I'm scared Jesus is trying to take this away from me. Right? Some of them are going to jump out at you because you're like, man, this is the area that I wish was different. Someone's going to jump out and be like, man, I am proud of this, or I'm not proud of this, or I've been traumatized by this, or this is a pathway that I walk in because of abuse I've had in the past, or whatever it is, right? Just don't circle them all, right? Circle a few of them that you feel like, okay, there's something here that Jesus wants to talk to me about. Circle those ones. And now you're looking at a piece of paper with a bunch of lists. You can draw a body in the middle if you want to. And you've got some that are circled, highlighted. Some of you artsy people are going to make it beautiful. Great, right? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask this question to the circled areas on your sheet. Here's the question. What does my new identity in Christ have to say to this part of my identity? What does my identity in Christ have to say to this part of my identity? Right? What does my identity in Christ, I had to ask, say to, to my introvert identity? Right? My identity in Christ says, Danny, you're called to serve people even though you're scared of them, right? So figure it out, right? And, and I had to walk into this life-giving process of realizing I actually have an abundance of energy to hang out and talk to people. It was all in my head. I don't need to be scared of humans, right? But I also need rest and solitude, just like Jesus. That's what my identity in Christ said to this identity that I saw in myself, right? Identity is not discovered by navel-gazing. Identity is received from Jesus. And so use the identity pieces the world has given you or you've given yourself as a helpful tool. But start asking that question, What does Jesus and the identity I receive from him tell me to do with this part of my identity? 
It's all part of Paul's three simple steps to life transformation, right? We'll review them. Stop doing the wrong thing, think differently, and start doing the right thing. You do these three things, it's easy, you'll be fine, right? But but here's the $10,000 question, right? This is what we need to look into the text and find the answer to is this. What, What does it mean if you're a Christian person, but you're still not experiencing transformative change. What does it mean? Because the chances are you're going to make this list, you're going to look at it, and you're going to be discouraged. Because you think, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, and i still got this thing as part of my identity. I wish it wasn't there. I'm Christian, I think, right? But I'm not experiencing the transformation Jesus wants, right? Maybe you've been walking with this issue for years and years, and nothing's getting any better. You think, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm trying so hard to stop sinning. I'm trying so hard to stop, start being righteous, but I'm not seeing any fruit in the action that Jesus is calling me into. What does it mean if you're a Christian, but you're not experiencing transformative change? I had a phone call a few weeks ago with a ministry leader at our church who, who works with a bunch of folks in our church who are in this very process, right? They've, they're coming out of a background of a lot of really hard things, and they're hoping to adopt new behaviors. They're hoping to change the way that they live. They're hoping to see transformation in their lives. And as we were talking, he's saying, you know what? It's such a struggle to be victorious over these sins that we've been in our whole lives he said, but, but Danny, you got to know that most of the teachings of churches don't help the process. I'm like, well, tell me, what, what's the church teaching? <laughs> what, what are we doing wrong? He said, well, most churches teach this. If you want to change your behavior, here's how it works. You, you stop doing the wrong thing. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and you start doing the right things, right? And so these people come in to my ministry. And they're like, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to seek forgiveness. And then I'm going to do the right thing. And it's going to be different this time. And God, please, just let me be different. And it's like they're looking for that magic prayer, that magic pill that'll make all those old desires go away. He says, so they get caught in this cycle where either they just keep falling back into their sin again or they're finding victory because they're gripping on a new way of living so tightly they're scared to fail, right? He called it white-knuckling our sanctification process, right? Just like holding on to this thing, just trying to be better. But it's exhausting, and eventually you just get sucked off of this, like, merry-go-round, and fly off again. He said, that's not how we do it. So I looked at my chart. We'll put it on the screen again. Stop doing the wrong thing. Think differently and start doing the right thing, and Okay, this is what Paul teaches. What's different? I think the thing that's different that a lot of us just skim over all the time in our practice and even in our beliefs is the middle one. It's not just stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. You've got to think differently. Think differently. Now, again, don't hear me wrong. Think differently is not the magic pill I did not promise. (laughs) Think differently does not mean that all the things you struggle with your whole life are going to be gone. Think differently does not mean that a part of your identity that's deeply ingrained in you, that you've had since you were born or that you picked up along the whatever it is, is going to change overnight or at all. Think differently does not mean that you are going to wake up tomorrow and everything will be different. But think differently has to be part of the process if you're truly going to experience victory in these things. Right? It's, it's part of every verse that we've read. In verse 24, in 4.22, he says, put off your old self, be made new, and then put on the new self. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. Right? You might think of Romans chapter 12. Verse 1 says that we need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then he says this. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world 
but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, your, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul does not say anywhere in his writings, stop doing bad, start doing good. He says, put off the old, let your mind be transformed, and your actions will follow. Let your mind be transformed, and your actions will follow. I told you that changing your behavior requires God's transforming power. Changing your behavior starts with the receiving and embracing a new identity. And the third thing, the last thing to write down is that changing your behavior starts with changing your mind. It starts with changing your mind. But the Bible word for this is repentance. Repentance is not merely you asking for forgiveness for your sins. It's not merely stop sinning, start doing the right thing. Biblical repentance, the word repentance, describes a change of mind that is so drastic it results in a change of action and everything else. A change of mind that results in a change of action. That's what real repentance is. I think about the moment you became a Christian. It wasn't just a, I'm sorry, Jesus, I'll do it better next time, right? New, real repentance was Jesus. I've been thinking about this thing all wrong. I've been trying to live life on my own. I've been trying to live life apart from you. I've been trying to blaze my own pathway. I've been trying to find righteousness by living a good life. All of that was wrong. I need to think differently, Jesus. It's about you. I need your forgiveness. I need your power. I need your presence. I need you to be my guide. I will never change apart from you. I can't believe I never thought about it this way before, but my thinking has been wrong. God, forgive me. Give me a new way of seeing the world. And then you wake up and your change of mind, if it was real, was so drastic, it started changing everything else about your life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, we, we don't even see people the way we used to. It's different because we're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Well, we put off the old self. Our minds are transformed. And then we start walking in newness of life. If you're wondering, okay, what does this look like mechanically? I'm going to give you four things to do to start walking through this process. And so think about that area in your life that you want to stop doing. Think about something that you want to put on, an area that you want to grow in your life. What's an aspect of your old identity that needs to be gone? What's an aspect of your new identity you need to wrestle with or walk in? Here's a process that will get you started in wrestling with this with the Lord, right? So step number one. This is why I told you to quantify it in the intro here, right? Step number one is this. Name it. Just name it. Some of you got stuff that's been part of your identity for a long time, and you won't just say it. Just say it. This is who I am. I'm an alcoholic. Fine, I said it, right? Or here's what I struggle with. Here's the thing that I just, I'm a prideful person, right? Just name it. I never read the Bible. I never thought I'd say it out loud. I just never do. I don't want to. I, I hate praying, right? Just say it. Say it. Don't say it right now. Say it. You can if you want, but just name it. Write it down. Take another piece of paper, right? Take that one. Name it. What's the thing? that you feel like, I need transformation in this area. Just name it. I love how when Jesus would encounter people in the Gospels, he wouldn't just fix them, right? A lot of times he would start by saying, what do you want? What do you want? Make some name it. I want to see. I want to be well. I want to be reunited with my family. Name it. And once you've named it, you start getting filled with anxiety and shame. Here's your next step. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Right, you're looking at a piece of paper and it says, I just, I drink too much all the time. All right. You took a long, loving look at what is real. What's the gospel say? What's the gospel say about your, your habits? 
The gospel says that you're forgiven. The gospel says that there's no judgment because Christ paid for your sin. The gospel says that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The gospel says that, that you've been made new. The gospel says that you no longer need to obey the lusts of the flesh. The gospel says that there's another voice called the spirit that's calling you into something higher. The gospel says that God does not judge you for your sin. You don't need to beat yourself up for your sin because there already was one who was beat up for your sin. The gospel says a lot of things. What does the gospel say? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the good news about the thing you're looking at on the paper? Name it, preach the gospel to yourself, and then let the work begin, right? Step three is rewire your mind with biblical principles. Rewire your mind. If anyone wants to geek out on mind rewiring, you should do a deep dive on how change works and behavior and sin, all these things, right? Rewire your mind with biblical principles, right? I know you can't literally rewire your mind, but here's what I mean. All right, you're, you're looking at this thing. It says, I drink too much. You realize, okay, there's no condemnation. I, I am forgiven. You are like, oh my gosh, Jesus is amazing. Now what, right? Okay, well, what does the Bible say about this thing you're looking at? Right, so you're gonna jump real quick to that passage that says, don't be drunk with wine. Right? Like, okay, write it down, right? Don't be drunk with wine. It's like, well, it wasn't really wine. It was tequila. Just, but you study it, right? <laughs> Think about it. Because what you're going to start doing is wrestling with, okay, obviously he means don't be drunk with a lot of different things. There's a lot of things you can be drunk on, right? And, and let that part of your mind start being active as you look at the biblical text, right? Why does he say don't be drunk with it? What else is after it? It says, but be filled with the Spirit. Then you start wrestling with, huh, I wonder if there was a, a correlation in ancient days where like spirits and the Spirit, right? Like, oh, I got drunk in, with spirits. No, I get drunk with the Holy Spirit. Ah, uh, no, right? Study it. Why would he say be filled with the Spirit right after saying, but don't be drunk with alcohol? How is being filled with the Holy Spirit similar to being drunk with alcohol? What would the Spirit do to prevent you from becoming drunk? What does the Spirit want to do through you that you can't do when you are drunk, right? Just think about all those different concepts. And right? if you were someone who walked in the Spirit all the time, would you even struggle with alcohol? Maybe, maybe not. Think about it. Wrestle with it. Let the biblical text, let your mind start to wander because the text of Scripture is true. The text of Scripture is helpful, and the text of Scripture helps you to understand this identity that you've received and this pathway that God is calling you to walk in. So look at the Scriptures, not just as this checklist of like, okay, next time I go to the bar, I'm just going to be saying like a mantra, don't get drunk, don't get drunk with wine, don't get drunk with wine, right? Ephesians 5, 24, don't do that, right? Let your mind be rewired in your study, on your walk, in your prayer time, in your reflection moment, because transformation starts with the mind. So what do the scriptures say about this issue and how can God bring freedom through what he reveals about who you've received, the identity you've received in Christ? Name it, preach the gospel to yourself, rewire your mind with biblical principles, and then the last one, this is the easy one, right? Commit to new practices, right? And again, the reason I kind of throw it out there, like commit to new practices is it's difficult. You're probably gonna struggle again especially if it's something that's big, that's deep-seated, that's been part of your life for a long time, there might be more question marks. You don't know what to do next, right? But just commit. What's something you're gonna do in response to what you've learned from the scriptures and from the gospel in this moment, right? And it could be anything. It could just be like, you know what? I, I think I need to confess this to somebody else because I, I'm just in this cycle where I'm living this and nobody knows about it, right? It could be, you know what? I, I just need to make a commitment that when I go out with my friends this weekend, I'm going to be the designated driver and I'm going to tell them out loud and I'm going to tell them, don't let me drink. I'm the DD. Whatever it is, right? Make a practice that's going to help. Or maybe you're going to think, you know, I probably shouldn't go out with those friends anymore. Whatever it is, right? What's the practice that's going to help? It could be a thousand things. It could be anything, right? And 
Again, it's not going to change your behavior overnight. It's not going to change your identity overnight. It's not, might not even change your struggle for the rest of your life, but it'll help you to wrestle and start moving forward as your mind is transformed, as you are no longer conformed to the image of the world or the identity that you've inherited, but as your mind is renewed, you are being transformed in that moment. Four things. Right, if you want a fifth thing, we can put this up on the screen. This is like a, a game changer. If you want to like 10x the speed of your transformation, uh, can you put it up there? Because I forgot what it was. It's really important though. <laughs> if you want to speed up the process, involve other believers. Involve other believers. I think part of the reason that some of you are trapped in sin is because you're the only one in the world who knows about it. You're sinning all the time, sitting right next to somebody you've never even told them. You're sinning while you're in a community of people. And they don't even know about it. You struggle with stuff that you've never confessed. Right? And I think an American individualized Christian experience is hey, it's all about me and God. But that's not what Ephesians has taught us. Ephesians has taught us that our life is us and God. And in the biblical context, in the first century context, in the ancient context, transformation and all of life was meant to be lived in community. Right? This is where we see things like James 5.16, where he says, confess your sin to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. So the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Confession, this is why ancient traditions of church has always had confession, not just you and the Lord, but confession with someone else and even to other people at times. Not because you've necessarily sinned against them, but because transformation happens when you let the sin that's been in darkness be dragged into the light. So name it, preach the gospel to yourself, Rewire your mind with biblical principles. Make a plan of action and involve other people. And the light will begin to shine into areas of your life that have been in darkness for a long, long time. And we can even jump back to what we read at the beginning in Ephesians 5, 14, where he says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Sometimes the light of Christ shines <laughs> like a spotlight, right? Or like one of those interrogation lights on you, like revealing sin in your life. Other times it turns on the lights, just like waking up in the morning, like the sunrise, like, hey, wake up. It's time for a new day. Other times the light of Christ shines on you like his glory and it humbles you. You think, Jesus, what am I doing with my life? Right? There's a lot of ways the light of Christ can shine on you. And one thing that we miss a lot of the times because of our individualized context is probably in this hymn, this concept of the light of Christ shining on us is also about the light of Christ reflecting off of us. And one of the beautiful things about as we experience transformation in community and as we experience transformation in our own lives is as we start conforming into the image of Jesus as individuals and together, his light starts reflecting off of us and showing the world what he is like. And so even as you journey down this process of experiencing transformation, Realize that part of what you're doing is you're becoming a person who reflects Jesus to the world around you. So don't white knuckle it and work real hard to look like Jesus. Surrender, give your life to Jesus and ask him to transform you into his image so that people will look at you and they'll see him through their eyes. I wanna pray for us, and it's a lot of heavy stuff. And then we're gonna end with taking communion together. So if you have not yet grabbed your communion elements and you're a believer in Jesus, while I'm praying, you're allowed to sneak out and grab them off the table out there. But uh, we're gonna pray together and then we'll partake of the Lord's table. So let's pray.